This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a very special and intense guest on the show. His name is Dakota Meyer. So if you don't know who that is, he's a United States Marine Corps veteran. He was also a veteran of the war in Afghanistan, and he was actually the first living United States Marine in 41 years to receive the Medal of Honor, and he's one of the youngest recipients of the Medal of Honor uh, Medal of Honor here in the United States. And he was given the award for his actions during the Battle of Ganjagal on September the 8th of 2009. He wrote a New York Times bestselling book about his life and about that experience, and it came out in 2013, and it's called Into the the Fire, a firsthand account of the most extraordinary battle in the Afghan war. And he's also the co-author of the new book, which is surely to be a bestseller. It's called The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Own Lasting Legacy. And he co-authored that book with retired SEAL Team 6 operator Robert O'Neill. And that's the man who killed Osama bin Laden. So uh, Dakota's been featured before on the Joe Rogan Experience, on Jocko Podcast, on Mike Drop, on all these different shows. And today, Meyer serves uh, in the Individual Ready Reserve of the United States Marine Corps Reserve. He's an advocate for American veterans. He's the creator of a podcast called the American Party Podcast and Front Towards the Enemy. He's an entrepreneur behind a lot of different brands, including Own the Dash and Flipside Canvas and some others, which we talk about in the show and all that's in the show notes. But this interview is legitimately one of the favorite interviews that I've ever done in my life, and it was wildly intense. I've done some other interviews before that were intense when you're talking about these crazy life and death type stories. There was something different about this interview with Dakota, and it just struck me different. You know, I was trying to hold it together myself at different points, which, you know, I I feel like I did a pretty okay job. And he and I talked a lot beforehand and a lot after the show. I think that he and I are going to have a good relationship moving forward, a good friendship. And it's just such a cool opportunity to be able to connect with these people that have done some very, very unique things, but have a different perspective on it. Because he talks about the Medal of Honor, and, you know, the name of this episode has Medal of Honor in it. But the Medal of Honor that he was awarded is something that he's not a big fan of. He actually hates it. It reminds him, and we talk about this a lot in the show, it reminds him of the worst day of his life and the fact that in his eyes, he didn't do his job. He didn't get his teammates, his Marines home. He didn't get them back stateside. He didn't get them to safety, right? So we dig into that. You know, we, we dig into, you know, when he had this uh, particular moment where he uh, basically was fighting a Taliban fighter and he killed him right up close, right? He, he beat him to death with a rock. I mean, if you've heard his story before, you've kind of heard that story. And if you haven't, you're in for a treat, but you know, there's a mild intensity warning with this podcast. If you're listening with kids, mild, you know, language warning and then things like that, but it's just such an awesome conversation. But even toward the end, when we're talking about his family and talking about his, you know, views on fatherhood and all that, like we went everywhere in this conversation. I couldn't be more pleased with how it turned out, but guys, I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Dakota Meyer, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Dude, I've been so excited to to talk to you and to interview you because I feel like you've been talking to me for like the last several weeks because I've been reading your books. I've been going through some of your interviews and everything like that. So finally, I get to address you know questions directly to your face. I'm just sorry that you have to look at mine while we talk about it. But I do like to start as generically as I possibly can. Anytime I talk to a veteran, I myself did not serve in the military. I went a little bit of a different route. It's something that I'm like, you know, a little bit... I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I would have done that. That's something I wish I would have checked off at some point in my life. But for you, why did you join, why did you join the military and why become a Marine specifically? Man, I, you know, I'll be honest. Uh, I, I, I don't have like the cool story of like, oh, you know, I grew up, you know, I, was, I knew I was going to be a Marine since I was five years old or whatever. Right. Right? Like, I, honestly, when I joined the Marine Corps, I had no clue what the Marine Corps was. 
Um, I, you know, my grandfather was a Marine, but honestly, I didn't know he was a Marine really until, I mean, I, I knew I'd heard about it, but didn't, I didn't pay attention, but like until I joined. Right. Right. Um, but I just, you know, when I, when I look back at it, I, long story short, I, I, I joined off of a dare. Right. So like basically a recruiter told me there's no way I'd make it as a Marine. And, you know, look, I was like, I'm in. Right. I, I, I guess I think that just, I think that's either in you or it's not right. And I think a guy like me, like it's not about like being infatuated with something or, or, you know, I don't, I don't try to live out some dream. I think for me, it's just about, I don't know. I think it's just, it's either in you or it's not. And I think looking back, like watching my dad, watching my grandfather, mm-hmm. um, you know, service, service was something that they did, but it wasn't something that was talked about. Right. It was just, right. a, it was just a way of life. Like the way they lived their life based off principles, based off of, of, you know, taking care of others, putting others before yourself, uh, treating people the right way. Um, all these things, I just think that it was just, it was just etched into me, um, my entire life of watching this. And I think that that's how, you know, I found this path to join the Marine Corps. Right. Well, it's also just kind of where you're at. So I grew up in Lawton. So Lawton, Fort Sill, I was around the military my entire life. I just went, you know, the, the academic leadership sports route, I just went a different route. Right. So if it, if you had been challenged by like a Navy recruiter or an army recruiter, do you feel like it would have been the same thing? Or was it some special about, you know, the few, the proud, the Marines, that whole deal? It was just the way the Marine recruiter was Yeah. versus, versus, I mean, cause I had been, I had been, you know, I had been talked to before by a army recruiter. Right. Right. But it was just, it was just the way that the, the Marine recruiter presented himself. You know, um, usually when I see army recruiters, they're in their fatigues, mm-hmm. right? Like they're in their, they're in their, you know, their, their, whatever you want to call them, whatever, whatever BDUs, yeah. acronym is for them right now. Right. <laughs> right. use AC, whatever it is. And, uh, you know, Marine recruiter was in his dress blues. You know, and it was like how he held himself, how he talked, and and it was just a I don't know, and 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 you know, but I just think that all of it played into into it. And look, he told me I couldn't do it. I think I was probably looking for something a little different than yeah. than being in my in my town and following the same route as everybody else. And I think that all that played together, you know, and and I ended up where I was supposed to be. Absolutely. And we'll get a whole lot more into that. But in 2013, Dakota, you released your memoir called Into the Fire. And I just, I appreciate you and your team shooting this copy over to me so I could dig into it before our interview. Uh, But this week you're releasing your second book, right? As of this week, as of the release of this episode, it's called The Way Forward, Master Life's Toughest Battles and Create Your Lasting Legacy. And we'll be referring to both books a lot in the show. But the thing that's unique about The Way Forward is that you actually co-authored it. Uh, It was co-authored with retired uh, SEAL Team 6 operator, Robert O'Neill. So I guess the question generically from the beginning is you're obviously not setting out and you've never said that you're setting out to, you know, be some sort of best-selling author and, you know, have a bunch of different books. So I guess why do another book? And then, you know, how'd you get connected with Robert to where y'all, you know, wrote this thing basically together? So, so Rob is one of my best friends. Um, his wife, Jessica is by far one of my best friends. Right. And, uh, both of them are just, both of them are just incredible human beings, right? And me and Rob relate a lot, right? We 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 have a lot of commonalities, and you know we, you know we 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 cross paths a lot, you know. So how we met was we both speak for the same speaking agency, hmm. and uh, or we did, and um, 
you know, we crossed paths, talked, just we hit it off, and it was just such a natural fit, right? Like, Rob never wanted to be in the spotlight. I never wanted to be in the spotlight. Like, none of us asked for this. We just literally loved our job, and we loved what we did, and and, and, and this is where we got, right? And and both of us had rather been back serving and still taking out bad guys than to be mm-hmm. doing what we're doing right now. But we were kind of forced into this situation, and we just had to figure out how to make the best of it, right? And and I think that that was the thing that, that that brought us together. And there's actually one story that me and him were talking about whenever I, I was going through a tough time. I can remember we were out in a out in a uh, we were actually out in, in D.C. and uh, I was talking to him about it. And I know it really connected with me. And I was like, man, like we're on the same page. And uh, but but yeah, I mean, like that, that that's how we met, you know. And and, and you know, when you ask, like, well, why do it again? Um, you know, I felt like in my first book, I, you know, I, I have this theory that look, you know, right at like, and I understand the reasoning behind it, but I, I feel like you've got to be fair. Right. And so, mm-hmm. you know, in the beginning, all of us came back and wrote these books that made like the, 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 the books on war made it like we were, we were larger than life. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we told the good side of it. We told the side of it that was exciting and entertaining. Right. About about going in and and killing guys, the bad guys and, and fighting evil across the globe. And you know what I mean? And it, and it and it it was wrote in a way that I understand the reasoning behind it. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it was fair. Right. I don't think it was wrote in a way to, to empower the everyday citizen. You know what I mean? It yeah. wasn't wrote in a way to where it was like, hey, normalizing, humanizing us, right? Of, hey, I mean, it was wrote so it was wrote in such a way that think about this, right? These books were wrote in such a way that that our children are now playing video games of the stuff that keeps us awake, right? Yeah. So, so it so it tells me that like, yeah, look, we need kids to look up to stuff like this, right? We need kids to look up to honorable people. Um, but it's not fair for us to, to tell just one side of it and pretend like it's not, you know, you don't humanize the things. But I also think that with the perspective of when we wrote that versus five years later, and that's what this book is, it's your perspective changes. There's a day of, I call it, there's a day of reckoning for everything. And, uh, and it's not necessarily holding you accountable, but it's like the either it's between the day of reckoning versus the aha moment. Right. And right. that's what this, the way forward is, is like taking all these bad situations or, or whatever these, these lessons or these hard times and how they make good times, hard times mm-hmm. make good times. And, and that's what the the collection of the way forward is, 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 is the hard times for me and Rob coming through all the way from growing up to war to after war and how we've we've taken these things and these lessons and put them in the toolbox to make good times and make a better life now, right? And that's that's right. kind of it. But it's not about being a, a title or a new. It's literally like if this book goes out and somebody reads it, and it makes them feel better, or it makes them say, "Look, I can do this," or it makes them empowers them in one way. It's worth it. Yeah, and I think I'm with you that the new book, The Way Forward, it seems more accessible to the everyday man because when you read Into the Fire or you read The Operator, which is Rob's memoir, it's like, 
bro, like most people can't be, they can't even fathom some of the stuff that happened in that book, good and bad. Right. But, the, but this one, it's more kind of like, here are some life lessons. Here's some things that I did that were ridiculous, that were crazy. And we're going to get into your story a lot more here in just a second, but it makes it accessible to where it's like, okay, here's how I can apply this to my life as a stay at home mom or as a salesman or as a teacher or as a whatever. And so I, I think you guys nailed it. And it's funny because I was read, I'm rereading the operator right now, re read into the fire. And so, you know, you're referring to a lot of the same stories in both books, but you know, it is in a more accessible light. It's not as much as the nitty gritty detail, but I will say just as my own, just aside here, when I was reading into the fire, I felt like it was fair because you didn't, you didn't try to make yourself seem like the genius yeah. the entire time. Like you were, you called yourself out for being dumb in certain oh, areas. And when you were insubordinate and it wasn't the right call at the moment, also when you were insubordinate and when it ended up being the right call. So I feel like it, it was at least fair. So that's what I got yeah. out of the new book is how accessible it was. But I feel like we obviously have to transition because it's really hard to tell your story, Dakota, without going into the battle of Ganjagal. But as I was preparing this podcast, right, as I was reading through your books and I was, I was preparing my questions and everything like that, I was kind of struck by the thought that like, are you tired of talking about the battle of Ganjagal? Is it cathartic for you? Do, do you like telling the story because you get to tell the story of your fallen teammates or does that make it even worse? I mean, what do you think at this point about talking about it all the time? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for Rob, but I think that was one thing that, that me and him related on was there's so much more to us than that. Mm -hmm. You know, like, like, I mean, Rob's killed tons of evil people, you know, and, um, you know, I, it's just, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I always ask people, you know, if I can tell it in a way to people who genuinely care, mm -hmm. uh, th that's one thing, but like to go out and tell it as entertainment. Yeah. It's another, right. And it's like, yeah, like a chamber of commerce meeting or something like that. It's like, ah. Yeah. And so it's like, I think that like what, I think what, do, am I tired of telling it? I mean, would, would you be tired of talking about the worst day of your life? Right. The, the, the toll of it, I don't care. I don't care to talk about it because I know that if I can help somebody and people genuinely want to know because they can't fathom it. Right. So yeah. I, I, I know that and I don't, I don't care to talk about it. Right. I don't care to talk about it, but like the, the mental exhaustion after I walk off the stage and tell that story, it's just like most people can't even think about the worst day of their life. Right. Much less go in front of crowds and and tell it. And you know what I mean? So it's like, am I tired of talking about it? There's a lot more to it. Like there's, there's just a lot more of it. Like there's a lot more to my life. And, you know, um, so no, I don't get tired of talking about it. I just, it's like, what's next? Right. Well, I, I definitely understand the what's next thing. There was a few uh, key moments in both of your books that I want to get to, which yeah. I'll kind of feed in that to a little bit here. And, and guys, just frankly, if you're listening to this, I'm going to tell you right from the jump, Dakota, I genuinely care about your story. Yeah. My audience is going to super duper care about this. The guys that I told that I was talking to you, they were, they were very, very excited to get a little bit of a peek behind the curtain, but it's impossible to get into all the details here. This isn't going to be a 10 hour long podcast. So guys, you have to get into the fire. You have to get the way forward so you can get the details of all of that. But just for our listeners in the most basic, I guess, generic way possible, go ahead and tee up the Battle of Ganjagal because it took place on, you know, the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan. You know, there, there were some 
kind of weird things going on leading up to this mission, things yeah. that didn't really set well with you. Uh, and then obviously things kind of went wrong pretty quickly. So just kind of tee up, you yeah. know, the pre-battle and then kind of where things started to go wrong. Yeah, you know, so like we, so we, I was on an embedded training team. I was in Northeastern Afghanistan. So a lot of people, when I try to, uh, try to, you know, get them in the area, it's like I was one valley over from where Marcus Luttrell was in the Korngold Valley, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I was just north of Asadabad, which, which are two really distinct places over in Afghanistan. Um, and so I was on, a, it was four U.S. and 80 Afghans on a team. And so we'd gone over. Uh, we were on an embedded training team. Our mission was to train the Afghans on how to um, – I mean, look, the, the, the theory behind it is, is amazing, right? We go over, we train them how to fight, we we make them better, we train them up, get them up, then they can hold their own. That's the right. theory and that's the methodology to it. Um, it was a very unique, very unique um, – it was a unique mission. Like, it was so rewarding. I loved my Afghan soldiers as much as I did my Marines, right? Like they were, we were all that close. And um, so we got called in that we were going to go into a place called the Ganjagal Valley. Uh, this valley is notorious in a book called The Bear Went Over the Mountain. Um, this, this valley is just known for being savages. It's a, it's a valley that goes, connects straight to Pakistan. Um, it, is a, it is a valley that's used a lot by, by the enemy. And so we were going to go in. Uh, the, the, the Ganjagal Valley people had came to, to us. There had been like some guy got killed by a rocket or something. They came to us. We talked and they, they basically said they wanted to renounce themselves from the Taliban and start supporting the government. And so we were going to go in and see how we could help them help facilitate that. Right. Help, help, help change this over because this would be huge for this valley. I mean, this would, this would really be a big, big deal. No chance of it ever happening, but, um, So the mission was, we got briefed the night before about this mission that we were going to go in uh, to this valley. Uh, We were going to park the vehicles at the mouth of the valley. They were going to go in on foot on a 90-man patrol and have uh, have meetings with the village elders and then see what they can do, and then we're going to come out. So I had a couple issues, like listening to the brief. I brought up a few issues with the mission planning the night before. Um, my background, just so you, for who doesn't know, uh, I was a I was a sniper. I was a school trained sniper in the Marine Corps, one of the youngest. Uh, I went over. So I had already served in Iraq, um, so I'm not saying that I knew. I I'm not saying I knew anything about combat, but I knew about mission planning. Right. Um, so I I, I I did have that. So I went over and we got the brief and I had a few issues with the brief. Right. And so now, now to be fair, to to be fair to my leadership, I was the guy who was always like, well, what if, right. Well, what if, well, you know, like, well, do we have, do we have a plan in case? I mean, like, and, and this is exaggerating, but like, this would be something that was not far from my radar of, well, well, what if we, you know, do we have a, a plan for if we have an aerial platform coming at us? And it's like Dakota, the Taliban doesn't have an aerial platform, right? Like, yeah. but either way, I was always what ifing. I was always wanting, uh, you know, you know, secondary, tertiary plans of how we're going to do this. I looked at combat as combat. I was a warrior. I was a fighter. Like that was my job. And so I was always looking at the it from the fight side, right? Um 
So with that being said, I brought up a few issues. You know, one of the issues was, and it doesn't take a tactician to understand this. Mm-hmm. We were going to have between the overwatch positions and the different breakaway, like this 90 man patrol breaking into different sections to do their jobs. Um, we were going to have, it was like over eight different sections on one radio frequency. That radio frequency was going to have to be relayed back to base through a sniper team. So, yes, this all works. And I, and I remember stating this, that, look, if, if one shot's fired, the chaos that will turn onto the radio <clears throat> will cost people lives. Yeah. They didn't want to change it. <clears throat> the second factor I didn't like or I didn't think was okay or was smart was they kept saying that, well, we got air on 15 minutes. When I looked into it, we had air on what's called 15-minute strip alert. So that just means that the rotors have to be spinning Mm -hmm. and they have to come off the ground within 15 minutes. It doesn't give us priority air. It doesn't, like, it's still 30 minutes, 30 to 45 minutes away in Jalalabad. So, which where they would was where they would be coming from. So either way, you're at an hour with air. So I wanted to get out of their head that they had air within 15 minutes. Brought that up, and then the the last is, issue I had was if you're taking a 90 man patrol in there, I understand not wanting to come in and and being as aggressive with having trucks because the look on that is different. Mm-hmm. But bring the trucks in behind this patrol. Right. right. So you go in, we have the truck stage closer that way that if it does hit the fan, you've got these up guns and armor to try to get people out. And I promise I'm going to quote to you what I was told was on this was, well, Dakota, we want to go in clandestine. Like you want to go in clandestine with a 90 man patrol? Are you yeah. like dumbest thing ever? So anyways, these were the facts. So this is what got me removed from my team, and they replaced me with a guy named Gunnar Sark Johnson. Um, you know, you can what if that all day, right? You can you can lay in bed and 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 be you know and beat yourself up about well, should I've kept my mouth shut? Should I've not? Whatever, right? I, I don't I don't even know how to look at it anymore. Um, so I got taken out of my team. We rolled in that morning. My team rolled in. Uh, my team was actually going to be. They were in the front of the patrol. So they were the they were the, the furthest in the valley mm-hmm. uh, when everything broke off, and so they pushed up. And as soon as they got to the valley, we'd been set up. Like, and and there was like so many factors that we weren't told that they were watching guys come from the Pakistan border. They were watching them on a on a UAV. They never told us. They knew it, and they never told us. They seen guys patrolling over to set up in this valley like that we're going into like yeah. there's so many factors to it that are just so weird um but anyways uh myself and rodriguez chavez incredible guy we were sitting back at the trucks and, and just the fighting started I, I won't get into all the details but the fighting started and then we just we we started going in with the trucks to go and try to pull people out 
Well, and, and that's the crazy thing is it's one thing to Monday morning quarterback Dakota. And it's another thing to say, here are the things that I saw that were wrong from the beginning. Cause it's really, really easy to connect the dots looking backwards, but it's hard to kind of perceive what you think might happen. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. We can't get into all the details. You're going to have to get the books to really get into the details, but you basically spurn the orders from your command to not go into the Valley. And you know, you and the guy driving the truck, you said, forget that we're going in there. But, and you made several trips into and out of the Valley. You, you saved a lot of lives that day. But there was a quote from Into the Fire that I thought was really, really interesting. And it's not something I've read quite a few military memoirs. I never really got something like this. And this was a quote. Strange though it may seem, I wasn't scared or angry. I was beyond that. I didn't think I was going to die. I knew I was dead. There wasn't anything I could do about it. I wasn't a thinking human being. I had gone somewhere else. I wasn't firing the machine gun. I was the machine gun. And so that's kind of a very macabre way of describing playing with house money. You're like, hey, I'm already this far into this. I know that I'm dead. I just haven't caught the bullet yet, right? But yeah. describe that a little bit for me because it's one thing to be in a flow state because people have heard about that. Oh, I got in a flow state. You know, I started making a bunch of free throws like Rob you know, said in his books or like I got in a flow state doing a sport or doing like a project or something like that. But to have no fear of the ramifications of death, I mean, take, through, take a civvy through that because it just doesn't make sense to a lot of people. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, like when you're getting shot at, like you, it literally sounds like the best way to describe it is if you take a, hold a piece of paper up and you take a pencil and you push it through that piece of paper, it's like that crack, right? right. Like that's exactly what it sounds like. And the closer it is, the louder the crack is. Right. And so, you know, we've been in quite a few gunfights up to this point and man, when I went in, it sounded like static. Like it was just like static. The rounds were hitting because they had elevation inside the turret. Right. Like, yeah. like there was nothing like as soon as we turned this, it was like we had to come in this valley and it was terraces. Like the valley was built with terraces all up through it. So some mm -hmm. of them were high. And as soon as we turned around and we got in the wash, I mean, there were bodies everywhere. Like Rodriguez Chavez literally was running guys over to keep them off the truck. Um, and it was just like so bad. Like, and I think that like there was a shock factor as soon as it turned. Right. But it was just the reality that I'm going to die. Like it was just the reality that I was going to die. And I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. I remember as soon as we turned and I was fighting, there was one time that like I sat down on the, there's a strap in the, in the turret. There was one time that I sat down and I was like, I don't, I don't even know what's going to happen. Right. Like, I'm like, this is, this is insane, but it just, I didn't care. I seen so many people suffering that I cared about. Like literally I seen so many people that I cared about suffering that it, it, I didn't care. And I knew that, all I could think about in my head was that I'm not going to, I'm going to make it as hard as I can for them to kill me. They're going to kill me, yeah, but they're going to have to fucking do it.
Yeah. I, again, as I was reading through that, that totally came through that you had gotten to this point where you can't literally understand it unless you've been in that point. I have a lot of friends that have been in combat that have been in situations like that. And it's, it's weird for them to be living now and living a life with kids and a wife or in a, in a business or a job or whatever. And to, to think that at one point they went to that place mentally, but also a lot's been made about during that battle, you know, this, this Taliban member, this jihadist militant, he got the jump on you. Yeah. Right. And so you basically look up in one of your, your moments of exhaustion and stupor and you see this guy and for yeah. whatever reason, he didn't just engage you immediately. He tried to get you to come with him. Maybe he thought, you know, we can get this guy on the news later and chop his head off and, you know, get some more converts who, who the heck knows what happened, but you managed to get a shot off on him. You shot your grenade, you know, hit him in the chest. You thought it killed him, but it didn't kill him. There's, you know, there's a live grenade round somewhere and you guys are basically in a wrestling match where, you know, the ramifications are death for one of the two of you. And you've talked about this a lot. You talked about it in the book, you ended up taking this guy's life with a rock. Um, but the difference I feel like with the situation you went through is the modern military in a lot of ways is mastering how to kill people from a long ways away. Yes. Uh, there, there are people in a, in a room in Stillwater, Oklahoma that are flying drones and taking people out. Like it's a video game, right? Like this is, you know, call of duty or battleground or something like that. It's just, or battlefield, whatever the name of it is. But this was a very up close and personal thing. Like you, you talked about the smell, you talked about everything. And again, I don't want you to get into any areas that you don't want to get no. into here, but, but talk about kind of the, the difference in the way we do things and the way that happened with you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And like, and I'll look, I'll be, I'll be hundred percent honest with you. This is one of my deficiencies, struggles, whatever is yeah. the, the, the anger that I have towards people. Like, it's not their fault that they're in a room over there. Yeah. It's not their fault that they just used to shoot shoot back against guys on a mountain where they could only see muzzle flashes, right? Like, it's not their fault, but it is different. Like, like the, the combat that they know versus the combat that – and I'm not – and it's, it's not their fault, and it's not yeah. anything to say I'm, a, I'm anything more than them. All I'm saying is – is the lens of combat for us two is way different. Yeah. And, and, you know, um, and so it's really, it's, it's, it's a struggle that I have. Like when I hear people like, Oh yeah, you know, I just want to go, you know, I just want to go back to combat. Cause I want to kick indoors and shoot people in the face. It's like, dude, you've never looked somebody in the whites of their eyes as you've taken their life. You know what I mean? Like, like don't, Quit giving off this perception that you've ever kicked in a door and shot somebody in the face. Because first off, I don't know too many people who are that good of a shot, right? Yeah. Uh, second off, it's like quit giving off this mentality. Quit romanticizing mm-hmm. war. There's nothing romantic. There, there's yeah. nothing about it that's that's awesome, right? Yeah, it's a different uh, kind of stolen valor. Like some people steal valor by wearing the the wrong uniform in public, but these people like talking about it that way. I have a friend who's in who's in the seals, and, and he talked about how they came back on Thanksgiving Day, and all the people that had never been outside the wire ate all the turkey and stuffing and good stuff. And here are these guys that have been outside the wire for forty eight hours. They're covered yeah. in blood and everything else that you can imagine, and here they are eating biscuits, right? You know, it's just it's a different weird thing, but that doesn't diminish their the other people. Oh, service, but it's not the same. It doesn't, but they have a responsibility to stick to what they seen and what they right. did. And when you start lying about your stories or you start romanticizing of more than what you did, it's stolen valor. Yeah. And um, so anyways, that's my rant on that. But yeah, no, I, I never, I'll never forget this guy, right? Like up to that point, up to the point of where I met him. And I always say I met him. 
I mean, I came in contact, you know, you, you come in contact with people mm-hmm. up until the point where I came in contact with that man. I, I loved fighting. Like I loved it. I was a guy who would look for fights. Like I was a guy who like, I just loved it. And you know why I loved it? I loved it because look, I would, you know, look, we're America, right? So we're America. So we have, we are a powerhouse. So the cool part is, is that I can go in here and me and you, let's say you're the enemy, me and you can start fighting. And as soon as you start kicking my ass, well, guess what I'm doing? I'm calling up air. I'm going to call in artillery and I'm going to call in all this shit that you don't have. And I'm going to win. Right. And then I walk out pounding my chest as if I did it. Right. Yeah. It ain't the same. The fight that they have against us versus the fight we have against them, it ain't the same, right? And so, so I'd always, I loved it, right? And uh, until this moment, and when he got to jump on me, I mean, before we went in that valley, if you wanted to know how badass I was, all you had to do is give me two seconds of silence, and I would have let you know. Hmm. And. Um, And then I, I, I messed up, right? I, I, I was on my knee. I, I'd gotten complacent. I mean, all I'd been doing is running around carrying bodies out. And, like, you know, we shot some guys here and there. And, um, I mean, literally I was running around. I was holding my weapon in one arm, like a briefcase kind of, like or just running with it. And I didn't even – I don't even know if I had my chest rig on. Like I was – like I took my chest rig off, had my body armor on. I was running around grabbing people. And um, – I'll never forget like getting hit in the back of my head, but it was like, you know, like when you get hit and it's like that, that kind of like that, the stars, like, you know what I'm talking about? Like it doesn't hurt, but it was kind of like that. And I remember turning around looking up and he was just standing over me. And all I could think about in my mind was like, I just, I, I didn't want anybody to have to come look for me. I didn't want anybody to get hurt looking for me. I didn't want my family to have to worry about me. I would rather them know that I was dead right here than to have to cause all that anxiety. Yeah. Um, so I turned and when I turned, luckily my fingers like it literally like just swung naturally and it hit the grenade launcher on my 203 uh, where the trigger was. And so I'm like, what do I got to lose? And I didn't even know if it was loaded because I'd been shooting and I didn't know if I'd reloaded or not. Mm-hmm. Like it was, there was a lot of factors to it that it was just luck. And I squeezed the trigger and it hit him. He hit the ground. And I literally thought he was dead. I didn't even, I didn't even look at him. I just went back to grabbing one of my best friends, Dot Ali. And I had laid down a little bit and this guy comes up and next thing you know, I'm getting choked out. And, uh, and I was like, man, this is it. Like, cause you know, like my, the vision just started, like it just started like closing, like, you know, it started diminishing. And, uh, I don't know what happened. I don't know how I got out of it. I kind of relaxed a little bit. I don't know if he bled out. I don't, you know, I don't know if the injuries got him, like what it was, but he let up enough to where I could get out and we were fighting on the ground back and forth. And I was just grabbing everything I could. And I got a rock and I remember hitting him across the side of the face and just about the third or fourth hit, he's laying on his back looking at me and you, you could tell he knew he was going to die. And I don't know that I realized it at that moment, 
but I, 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 I think subconsciously I realized it. I, I just probably didn't process it then, but I'll just, I, I never forget. Like, I remember I didn't know that guy. He believed in, he, neither one of us thought we were wrong at that moment. Hmm. He believed in his cause as much as I believed in mine. Um, he has family that's going to miss him just like I would. Could have a wife. He could have kids. Um, but literally we were there at that moment because we were born in two different places. And for me, at that moment, I realized that I don't fight because I hate what's in front of me. I fight because I love what's behind me. Right. And that's a whole different perspective. You know, like that's a whole different perspective. And at that point, fighting was, has never been fun for me since. Um, I don't, obviously I don't care to do it, but I don't see the reason to do it. And, and I went ahead and killed that guy, took his life because that's the way life works. But I appreciate that man. I appreciate that man for the lesson that I was taught, for the person that it made me now. That guy right there changed my life forever. And I killed people before. But I don't know that there's many people in my life that made such a positive impact on my life as that man. It's it's an odd thing to say. It's an odd thing to hear, but it does also make perfect sense. And it, it reminds me of a quote actually from The Way Forward, because since this all happened and uh, you know, there have been people that have questioned your story, you know, yeah. questioned the validity of your battle story and the situation with this Taliban guy that you took out. But here is a quote and I want to get your, your feedback on it. Here's what I have to say to that BS. Unless you were there, you don't know. And let me tell you why I can say that. Because when I close my eyes at night, it's the eyes of that Taliban soldier that I see looking into mine, knowing what was coming and that he was about to leave this world and enter another. Night after night, I look into the eyes of a dying man. And every time that image replays my mind, I don't see an enemy. I see myself. So I was with you, Dakota, all the way. Yeah, like I can imagine closing your eyes and seeing the, the eyes and the of the man the, whose life he took. But it was those last three words. I see myself. What did you mean by that? I think that that the evil in me died right then too. You know, he, that man took some bad out of me, right? Like mm. he forged me challenged me to be a better person after that. Um, you know, because what we, what nobody likes to understand is good people don't kill bad people. Bad people, you have to drop to that level. I don't care how you look at it. Murder is murder. Like whether it's self-defense, whether it's either way, it's killing. It is killing. There is nothing pretty about it, whether you're on the good side or the bad side. You have to drop to the level to fight, to do these types of things, to be capable of doing these types of things, right? It has to be in you. Like, 
And that's what, like, I think Jordan Peterson talks about it really good. And I, I don't mean bad people, what good, bad, whatever. I mean, mm. you know, Jordan Peterson talks about the monster inside you, right? You have got to be able to get on the level, to, 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 to fight monsters. You've got to be able to become a monster. And, and that's just the reality of it, right? Like, that's the reality of, of it. And, and I think that, like, I think that when I say, when I say I see myself, I just, I seen, there's just so many antidotes to that, right? Like, obviously I seen the evil in me about to take this man's life, but it also, he also pulled some good out of me. You know what I mean? Like, as crazy as it is, like, it's such a crazy thing to say. It's such a deep thing to say. But it's like this moment, literally, literally this moment makes me the man I am when I get off the truck. When it, The level of empathy that that man pulled out of me to have understanding for others. If I can connect, if I was able to connect with a guy who just tried to kill me, who believes were so far away, if I could find a way to connect with him, We can find a way to connect with anybody. Yeah. And, and Dakota, it's a cornerstone moment for your life, but it's just, it's a, if a different intensity, cause like some people, the cornerstone moment of their life is losing the state championship game or a book they read or, you know, a, a crazy great thing. You know, the, the moment they saw their child born, like something like that, yours just has obviously a different tinge to it, but uh, it's just part of your story and it, it does create a pathway for you to, to have other people's understanding. Cause there are other people that are in your situation that I can't align with them and say, Hey brother, I know how you feel, right? Yeah. That's just not something that they could ever say. But, uh, to even keep the, the story of the battle going just a little bit, obviously the battle ended at some point, you go into all the detail in the books. Um, but you lost your teammates, right? You lost your team on teammates. You weren't with them because you know, you question authority. They thought you were being insubordinate. They took you away from your team. So I know that there's a little bit of guilt there. You talked about that a lot, but you lost Lieutenant Michael E. Johnson, Staff Sergeant Aaron M. Kinnefick and Corpsman third class James R. Layton. Right. Um, and you found their bodies. You talk about taking them out. It, you know, it, it's a tough situation. Uh, I don't envy the position you're in of having to talk about it, but there is a quote from the way forward that doesn't seem like it should relate, but it like snapped into my brain whenever I was thinking about this interview. Okay. There was a time in your life when you were growing up because you, you lived on a farm with, uh, with your father and you were caring for a cow of yours named Tinker, right? So Tinker was supposed to die. We don't have to get into all the veterinary medical reasons why, but Tinker should have died. But you said, no, you're like, I'm not, this, this cow's going to live, damn it. And you cared for this cow. You spent months trying to preserve her life. And there's a really funny story of how you ended up preserving her life, which we'll, we'll leave that to the imagination of the readers uh, whenever they get to that part of the story. But here was a quote and it's, it, it was just a random quote. It was because my biggest fear in life was not being able to be what someone needed me to be when they needed me to be it. It's still my biggest fear. So in that moment, when you found your teammates, I know you thought you should have been with them, right? You still think that you should have been with them. Uh, Maybe the outcome would have been different for them. Maybe the outcome would have been different for you. Maybe you would have died instead of them, something like that, right? But 
I just, that, that quote, it seems like that's been in you from the beginning, Dakota, that God wired that in you, this overwhelming desire to overcome that biggest fear of needing to be what people need you to be in that moment. So take that wherever you want, man. I, I want to be, you know, cognizant of, of where you're at in the story, but th- is that related? Do you feel like it's related to your story? Yeah. I mean, it's every day, right? I mean, it's every day and where, where it came from, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, I, I, I've spent a lot of time trying to figure that out, you know, and it's like, yeah, I mean, you know, that that's literally, that's why I get up and I train so hard. I still today, right? Like it's why I, it's why I try to push myself so much further, right? It's why I try to push other people. It's why I, I'm a firefighter. It's why I do these things because it's why I try to read up on knowledge. I'm always trying, I, I don't, you know, I, you know, when I lost my teammates, it's still the biggest failure in my life. And when people say, well, it's not, no, no it is. And, and it's, and it is, and it's not arguable. It's, you don't get to change the facts because you don't like how it feels. Right. And, and if you take that away from me, it, 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 it changes up the drives that I have, right? It's like, no, I, I failed. I went in to go get my teammates. We all know that. And when I got to them, I didn't get them out alive. Like, it's a clear failure, period. Um, but again, it's it's defined who I am. It's 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 gave me the the why that a lot of people don't have. And so with that quote being, you know, I, my biggest fear is that I won't be able to be what someone needs me to be when they need me to be it. It's it's real. Like I, I just want to help people. Like I just, I just want to help people. I just want to make the world a better place. Right. Like, man, I don't, I don't care how much money I have. I don't care what type of house I live in. I just want to serve people. I just want to, I want to take away all the pain from these bad, like from people who are in bad situations or those moments that they don't know if they can get through. Like I want to be able to come in and help them get through that and help them see that, that it's going to be okay. And, and whatever the circumstances are, we will get through it and I will stand next to you and I don't care what's in front of it, but we will go through hell together and where we end up, like you're not going to be alone. Right. And, right. and that's literally it. It's, it's whether it's a car wreck, whether it's a, whether it's a friend going through something or, or whatever it is. Like I just, I try to show people that no matter what, if you think nobody cares about you, I do. And I don't care who you are. I don't care if I know your name. I don't care what I know about you. Like I genuinely care about you. And it's like, people think, Oh, that's cliche or whatever. Right. It's like, well, it's, it's not, it's not. And, um, it's not a cool thing to say. It's not a, it's not, it's just a way of life. It is a way of life and it's a good word to live by. But in all honesty, and you've, you've talked very openly about this, you weren't always in that position mentally. Um, because whenever you did get back, whenever you got out of the Marine Corps, you were obviously having some, some big time issues. Um, you, you were kind of falling apart in a lot of ways in your life. And at one point you decide that that was it. And uh, you were going to take your own life. Uh, you parked your vehicle, you reached in the glove box, grabbed your Glock, put it to your head, pulled the trigger, 
click, but no bang. Right. Um, and it reminded me of a quote from your book because, well, here, I'll just read it here. It's from into the fire as a grunt. I was resigned about death. I don't go to church to me. Organized religions seem like bureaucracies, but I believed in God grunts. See his ax on the battlefield guys beside you get shot or blown up. You don't. God has a plan that we won't understand until we cross to the other side. There's no sense obsessing about getting tagged. Either a bullet has your name on it or it doesn't. No need for philosophizing. So to philosophize a little bit, Dakota, there was a bullet with your name on it. And it should have been in your Glock, but it wasn't. You know, somebody unloaded your pistol, right? You didn't know that when you put it to your temple, but that bullet had your name on it, brother. But it, it didn't take you, right? There's a different plan for you, right? Uh, and and again, I don't know how that's affected you moving forward. Obviously, that's another cornerstone moment of your life whenever you made the decision to end it all. But here we are talking. So give me a little bit more on that. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, in 100%, like, you know, one, one of my closest friends is is Mac Richard from Lake Hills Church. I mean, a guy has been with me. I mean, look, you know, um, I believe in God. I believe that, that God is, is – I mean, I watch the acts of God – all the time, you know what I mean. All the time, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm, a, I am a, I am a living, you know what I mean. Like I am, like my life in so many ways, like you know, um, are just, just God's hand, you know, take, taking, taking it in His own hands, right? And, mm. and, yeah, I mean, you're right. There's a bullet, and I, and I do believe that. I believe that it doesn't matter if you, you have a paper cut and you're in the best hospital in the world with all the best doctors in the world. Um, it could be a paper cut on your pinky finger. Then if it's your time to go, it's your time to go, and there's nothing we can do about it, right? I've seen this happen so many times. And, um, yeah, I you know, when I tried to take my life, it, it wasn't it wasn't because – Honestly, I just felt like I had become a burden on everybody else. Hmm. You know, I, I felt like that I, I had just, and I had, I had lost my way. I had gotten to this victim mentality that so many do of, well, you know, like I just didn't want to look in the mirror. I was blaming everything around me. Like, oh, you know, I went to combat, lost my whole team, blah, 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 blah. Like I serve this country, this country owes me. I'm a veteran, blah, 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 whatever it was, right? Like I used all these lines. I got PTSD, you know, uh, the world needs to, and, and what I, what, what that moment may taught me was that, and obviously not instantly, but nobody owes me shit. And honestly, I owe because of, because of the, the hard times I've gone through, I owe people more and I owe them more because I'm still here and I owe it to be able to connect with those people on times like this to help them get through it. I am here to help bring them through these times that they've never seen that I already have. Like that's my obligation to people. And instead of this mentality of, well, I'm, you know, I'm just going to, it's a selfish, entitled victim mentality. And I have an obligation to, to be better for it. And then it gives me more tools and more ways to connect to people by these hard times. And I have an obligation to do that until God tells me I'm done. 
Right. Well, I mean, we've all heard it and I think you alluded to it even a little bit earlier, like hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times. So if you can focus in on the hard times making strong men like that, that's kind of what you're talking about. Uh, But it would also not be a full, you know, recounting of the Dakota Meyer story if we don't talk about what happened in 2011. So in the summer of 2011, you were alerted by a Marine colonel that the White House had reviewed your award packet from your time of service and and what happened in the Battle of Ganjagal and that they might be giving you a call. And so you eventually did get a call, you know, while you were out working a construction job, which is a pretty funny story. You get a call from the president of the United States, Barack Obama at the time, he informed you that he had reviewed the notes of the battle and that he had signed your citation for the Medal of Honor, which is not a call that most people will ever get. You go to the White House in September of 2011 for the Medal of Honor ceremony. You mentioned kind of in jest to a White House aide that you you wish you could sit down and have a beer with the president. That ended up happening regardless of what you think about Barack Obama. That's a pretty cool story. Then you go through the entire Medal of Honor ceremony. Um, but from the outside looking in, you would think that if you go to, you know, dakotameyer.com or whatever your website is, it'll be in the show notes, that you would have the Medal of Honor right there, that that would be the first thing that you would talk about, that you would have a Medal of Honor tattoo and be and be that guy, right? And I've heard you talk about this in previous interviews, that you kind of hate the medal. Yeah, like you don't you don't really like it. It reminds you of the worst day of your life. And I want to read this quick quote and then I want to get, you know, your feedback on the entire process before the medal yeah. afterwards, how you feel about it now. But this is a quote from Into the Fire. When the president hung that medal around my neck, I felt glum. I couldn't smile and I said nothing. I gave no remarks and avoided the press. As a Marine, you either bring your home you bring your team home alive or you die trying. My country was recognizing me for being a failure and for the worst day of my life. So a lot of people would disagree with you, but guess what? I don't get a vote, right? You're the one that gets to figure out how you feel about certain situations, but take us through that whole thing, knowing that you were up for the Medal of Honor, getting the call from the president all the way through to present day. Yeah, I mean, you know, look, when I got notified that I was going to be getting the medal, um, you know, we went back and forth and I'll never forget the first meeting that we had. Um, I walked out and said, I'm not, I don't want it. Um, I walked out and said that, that I'm not a hero. Um, and, and, and the quote that the Colonel said back to me was, well, the president of the United States thinks you're a hero. And I remember saying back to him, I said, well, if he thinks I'm such a hero, why don't you call my teammates up and let them know and walk out? Brutal quote. Yeah. And, um, so finally, like, I was like, Hey, just mail, just mail me the medal. Like I, no ceremony. I don't want shit. Just mail it to me. He's like, that's not how it works. And so we went back and forth, and, and a lot of people don't know this, but the only way I agreed to come to the ceremony was if they had a ceremony at each one of my teammates' grave sites at the same time. Hmm. And so the Patriot Guard went and did that, and it was just – so at the same time I was receiving my medal, they were honoring those guys across the nation. And, um, you know – I'll never forget standing up there and getting, you know, that medal around my neck. And it was the sickest, sickest I've ever been. And it still is. Like, I hate, I don't wear the medal. Like, I don't wear it. I honestly, just full disclosure, I don't even know where it's at right now. Um, I gave it to my daughter. Uh, You know, she always, she asked about it one time and I, I just gave it to her. And, you know, she wears it probably has it in a play box somewhere. I, I think she might have took it to school and let her friend borrow it for a week or two. I don't know. I haven't seen it in a while. Um, <laughs> but I understand what the medal represents. 
but for me, like it's for me, it's you know, I for me, I have a lot more to do, and if I wear that medal around. I feel like it's the Uncle Rico syndrome. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that was one of the reasons I become a firefighter. And because how how long could I go living off of 10 years ago of one day of my life and wearing this medal around and people looking at me like I'm, I'm something I'm not. And so that's why it's important for me to still get on a truck and to still go and serve the community at that level. And I, I just, that medal, I, yeah, I hate that medal. I hate it. It's such a hard, you know, from my perspective, it seems crazy to hear you say that, but at the same time, I've read your books. I get it. Like I, I get it and I don't, it's a, it's a weird dichotomy in my own brain because it, it doesn't make sense while it makes sense perfectly. Uh, but, but also the thing that's curious as I was thinking through, uh, your story and thinking through all the things that I seemingly felt like I knew about you before we got to this conversation is how different of a perspective you would have on the pullout from Afghanistan than, you know, another combat veteran or another veteran that didn't see combat or just someone here stateside looking at the news. You know, you, you talked about even in some of your books about how, you know, Afghans, you can, you know, people, there's an Afghan saying that you can uh, rent an Afghan, but you can never buy one. And then we kind of see that with what's going on with people that are like switching from, yeah, go America to, well, I guess I'll be a tally now or something like that. But from your perspective, after, as this was happening, I got the perspectives of a lot of people on the show, you know, gold star widows and people that had seen uh, battle in Afghanistan and people that had covered the battle on the ground there to kind of get their perspective. But from your perspective, as somebody who lost brothers in Afghanistan, Afghanistan, who shed blood and had your blood shed in Afghanistan, to see the United States pull out in the way that it did, and seeing what we're seeing now with the humanitarian crisis moving forward with innocent Afghans, you know, on the ground there. What are your thoughts? I mean, I'm gonna be a straight shooter to you, right? Like, I'm not yeah. going to get all emotional about it, romantic again, romanticizing about it, right? Look, we should have never been there. Past, I mean, we first off, we should have never been there. Right. Well, uh, we had Osama bin Laden cornered pretty early in our occupation. Listen, of the, it wasn't even occupation at that point, And we decided not to go get him. And then, you know, here we were 20 years later. I believe that if you don't think for one second that if the Taliban had thought that we were going to occupy them for 20 years, they would have gave bin Laden up on 912. Right. Yeah. No, no. This was all about money. There were too many, like, why do you think every administration kept kicking it down the road? Because guess what? It was all about money. Like, don't, let's, we, let's get out of this romanticizing that, oh, it was about protecting our country. Because it wasn't. None of the guys I killed were ever going to come attack America. Um, it was literally about, about money. And it's about bullshit politics, right? Which is something we've seen so many times. I mean, you're watching this Ukraine situation go on right now. Why don't you give me one reason as to why, what, what benefit is it for us to go over and be, in, be part of that, right? Like, it's just crazy. 
Um, but anyways, for me, like how we pulled out, yeah, does it suck to know that my teammates died for that? Yeah. But I knew that way before we ever pulled out of Afghanistan. You know what I mean? Like, like I knew it. We knew it when we were there. You know what I mean? None of us thought that Afghanistan wanted to be a democracy or wanted to be free. None of us did. We all were over there, and we knew that it, this was going to happen at some point. And and so, like, when I hear, like, oh, we should stay there, why? Why? Like, why should we stay there? Like, they're not our problem. I don't care what anybody says. They're not our problem. We've got bigger problems here, you know? And And it's like... You know, it's just a, a damned if you do, damned if you don't. But it's like we went in there with no strategy of what a win was. Mm-hmm. Like, what are we supposed to do? If we were going to go occupy or try to make all these countries who are doing evil stuff better, I mean, you, we got to go all over the world, right? And so as, 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 as upsetting as that is and as hard as that is to swallow, you know, we're over here trying to fight these countries that don't even want help as we're over here rising the debt for mining your children. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard way to look at it. And I understand that it's hard to look in the mirror and say, you know, the, the guys that I cared about so much died not for what I thought they were dying for. But, just because we don't like to look at it that way, it doesn't mean it's not reality. And it doesn't mean that we should continue to stay there because we don't like the feeling of pulling out and saying that this was dumb. Yeah, it's, I mean, Dakota, I literally feel like we could spend the next five yeah. hours talking about the military industrial complex and how real that is or how reality that is, or, you know, geopolitics and all that. And it just kind of muddies the waters, but to even, I guess, bring it down to to a simple, more just basic military level, again, as a, as a civilian on the outside looking in, there's some concerning things whenever I look at the military. Obviously, the, the seeming lack of leadership or just basic common sense with some of the general class, some of the woke stuff we're seeing in the military, some of the things that are happening at the academies. You know, I had somebody from the Air Force send me a private message on Instagram saying how they were being trained on how to put pronouns in their email bios. This is in the Air Force. Uh, the lowering of standards so that women or just basically weak men can make it into these uh, spec ops communities or, or make it into just the basic military or whatever. It's concerning to me. Obviously, like, I, I don't necessarily think we need to be the world's police, but I want the U S military to be strong and I want the best people to be in these positions. I don't want anybody to be elevated to a position where they could potentially lead to someone's death later. Like you, you get this person to be a special pick and now they're a seal or now they're a, a, a Marine recon or something like that. And then something happens on the battlefield and they're not strong enough to pull someone out of danger. And I I'm concerned about it, but for you having been in the military, but you not being a 20 year guy, but someone that still supports veterans and veterans causes. What do you, what do you think about when you see some of this woke stuff, some of the lowering of the standards and just in general lack of leadership with our military? Yeah, I mean, look, the lack of accountability, right? Like that—that's—that's that's the issue, right? It's—it's it's accountability, the lack of accountability. Uh, and, and you said it, and I—I I love how you just said, because I hate when I hear men talking about, 
oh, well, they're lowering the standards, so we're going to have women in there. And it's like, hold on. They're also lowering the standards so that there's going to be weak-ass men in there. Like, let's don't right. forget this. And right. I, I serve next to men who I'd rather have. They're, like, I've served next to men and women. I've been in gunfights with men and women. And I've seen women outperform some of these guys that should have never been there, right? So, like, all that is just whatever. Um, but I – yeah, it's concerning. If you're not concerned that that the joint the joint chief admitted that he called China his right. counterpart and let them know that he would call them and tell them if we were going to do anything nuclear, if that doesn't concern you, if just that piece of it. Right. The, but but here's what I want to say and I'm with you. I'm and I know my 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 view on Afghanistan, Iraq, all that I know it kind of seemed like, like, okay, well, I don't want to go take care of other countries. And, and that's not it. Um, what I want to say is, is I don't think we need to occupy it. We have the best SF units, CAG, Delta. You've got, I mean, I mean, you've got the SEAL Team 6. They are, the, like, you can trust this. They are the best mm. on the globe. And at the point that, that, that people dial us into where we can spend money in these pockets like Iraq and Afghanistan or, or Syria, like we're, where we're occupying big military there and making you think that that's the only place, understand this. Like the people of America need to understand this, that the war that we have is global. It's global. It's on our border. It's all across the world, right? So – we just need to be taking hits everywhere. There are no boundaries. Like if it's in Germany and we know that a, a shithead is there, we go into Germany and we smash that dude. Like like that's that's how we need to do it. And when you talk about weakening the, the world's military or the, the America's military, we are – when America's strong, everybody hates us. Right. But when America's weak, the world suffers. Yeah. I mean, we, we see that uh, all, all the time. And those people that are like, we shouldn't be the world's police. That's ridiculous. The, it's easy to say that when you live in a compound or you live in a gated neighborhood or you, yeah. you live in Manhattan and all this is like, yeah, of course you would say that. You're not worried about some tribesmen from over the hill coming over here trying to take your cow and your family. Like, what are you talking about? Like you have no perspective whatsoever. Uh, and I, I feel like we've been like super intense for this entire hour. I, I do want to shift gears a little bit to talk about, you know, Dakota Meyer, the person because you're obviously way more than what you did on one day, as you just described. I want to talk a little bit about fatherhood because in both of the books and Into the Fire and The Way Forward, you talk about how you don't know your biological father, that yeah. a guy named Mike Meyer, uh, this was a guy that adopted you whenever the day that you were born, he was with your mother for a short period of time. Uh, you went to go live with him uh, whenever you, I think you were 12 or 13 years old. Um, yeah. And you basically talk about how, well, here's a short quote from your book. I learned early on that just because you come from the same blood as someone doesn't mean that they are family. Big yeah. Mike Meyer was my real dad as far as I was concerned. The thing I'm curious about is I'm I'm a relatively new father. I've got a one and a half year old, you know, about 20 month old, and I got another a son on the way. Um, and by the time this episode comes out, he may be here with us, right? Um, and so I see myself as a father through the lens of my father and the things that my father did that were good, that were bad, that were indifferent or whatever. So for you, with your daughters and, and with your family, 
How does that affect, you know, basically not knowing your biological father, but having a relationship with Mike, but it wasn't perfect. And there was some craziness with, with your biological mom and blah, 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 and all that. How does that directly uh, reflect who you are today as a father? How has it shaped you? Yeah. I mean, you know, my dad, I mean, my dad taught me, I mean, if I can be half the dad that he was, I'll, I'll be successful. Uh, you know, I was fortunate that my mom showed me what not to be. And my dad showed me what to be. Um, and, you know, like I, I I look at a lot of things like the way he handled things, the way he didn't. Um, and, you know, it's always a back and forth of like, you know, I don't remember my dad telling me he loved me. Right. Like, I don't remember those ever being conversations. I don't ever remember my dad like setting me down and like, hey, you know, like, OK, so we did this. Like, can, do you want to think about how this made me feel when you said that? Right. Like, <laughs> right. I don't ever remember that being part of it, right? Now, I do think that there's certain situations where I need to do that with my children. But I'll tell you what my dad did is my dad didn't have to say anything. My dad lived it. My dad didn't have to tell me how you should live. I could watch my dad every step of the way. Every single day, my dad woke up and brought it, right? Like he woke up and he brought it. He was a... a a badass son to my grandfather and grandmother, right? He was a badass dad to me. He was a badass businessman, right? Like, like all these aspects, my dad didn't have to talk about it. My dad was being about it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that like, like for me, that would, you know, like if I can be half the man that he is, like I'll, I'll be somebody. And, you know, my dad didn't get, my dad would like, my dad didn't question how he was doing things. You know, my dad knew what right and wrong was. My dad knew, my, my dad basically, my dad is one of the simplest men you'll ever meet. And he basically does two things. He wakes up every day and he gives all he's got. And he doesn't have to question or, or live by social normality or whatever it is, right? Like he's not like going with the norms. My dad knows what right and wrong is and he knows he's doing his best. And he knows what right and wrong is. And that's as simple as it gets for my dad. And, but just because it's simple doesn't mean it's easy. Yeah. I mean, for me as a father, there are a lot of things that I want to say that I do. And I want to say that there's things that I do incredibly well, but I I know the score for a lot of people. And I know the score for me. I know that there's a lot of things that I do that it's just like, it's astonishing, but it is really awesome when you get to see an unpolished dad. Cause I would say in a lot of ways, I had a dad that wasn't polished, right? You know, they're probably not going to write a bunch of like relationship books about how a father should treat a son. And, Oh, he said this and he shouldn't have done that. He should have, you know, done this this way. But you know what my dad did? My dad, when I decided to play sports, he decided that he was going to see everything. He was going to go to every practice and he was going to go to every game. And I always knew the score growing up that my biggest fan on the planet was my father. And that has an, 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 a huge impact. My dad didn't read a bunch of books. He didn't go get his PhD and fathered him or whatever to kind of figure that out. He just modeled it. And this was a guy, my father lost his dad when he was 13 years old around the same time you went to go live with big Mike. Right? So you're looking at these things, like how could he have decided to do those things? And I'm so thankful for the man that he is. And for the man that he helped me to become when all the the signs would have pointed to the fact that he wasn't going to be able to do that. So I would go ahead and think think about this, right? You know, like, 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 you know, we, we get wrapped up in what, so being a parent is my kids liking us, right? Or, or like, you know, brotherhood 
is about me not hurting your feelings, right? Like there's all these aspects of it and it's, and it's exact, it's wrong, right? My dad, I'll never forget. My dad looked at me and he's like, I'll, I'm not your friend. I'm your father. Mm-hmm. And, and when you think about that, you know, like I see this in the fire service, I've seen this in the military, you know, you, you got these guys, like you have an obligation as brothers to hold people accountable, even when it's hard. It's about accountability. It's about pushing them to be do their best. It's about making sure that you are being truthful to them as to where they're at. And right in that brotherhood, isn't that like what teammates do of like, hey, hey, you're wrong right now. Like you need to right. fix this, right? But we've gotten this idea that, oh, I want to make everybody like me as a parent, as a friend, as a brother, as a husband, as a, you know, as a wife. Like we've gotten this idea that we want to be liked. We want the likes of Instagram, social media. We want to be liked instead of, instead of truthful. And it's, it's not just truth. It's capital T truth, not my truth and your truth. And let's just do whatever. No, no, no. Right. Like there, there is a truth here. This, this postmodern idea that somehow truth doesn't matter. And truth is somehow the power of white supremacy. It's just a ridiculous thing for people to think through. And, and here, I don't, you've got your own podcast where you get to talk trash. I need to talk to you more. I don't need to go off on my own tangent here, but uh, one thing that I, I am curious about, cause we got into your story and I really appreciate it, but obviously you're, you're your own guy now, right? There, there's a lot of stuff that you're doing now. You've mentioned being a firefighter often. You're also still reserve in the Marines, as I understand it. You've got podcasts, you've got your own companies, own the dash and others. So you just give my audience the rundown. What is Dakota Meyer up to these days? No, so I'm a a firefighter, uh, obviously a father. I I have a gym called the dash gym. It's, uh, it's out here on my property. We've got some really awesome people, um, that come to it every morning, every morning we've got a 5am class. Uh, so just awesome community there. I've got an uh, apparel brand called Own the Dash, which is just, it's about living your life. It's about going out and just owning it, owning that dash that's on your tombstone between the day you're born and the day you died, right? Um, I've got, we've got a podcast, myself and Dan Holloway, uh, called the American Party Podcast, where we just talk about principle, like principally looking at the issues that we have in the world today, which is something that doesn't happen often. Um, and then I've got, you know, I, I have a company called the Dash IV, right? So basically we do uh, hydration therapy or IV therapy. Uh, we do NAD. We do all these these um, really incredible, incredible therapy sessions for people that just, it's really just awesome watching people get excited about their health again. So right. really fulfilling. And then uh, I, I have a company called Flipside Canvas, right? So we do canvas art that I like to think it's the most badass art on the face of the planet. And so, uh, yeah, it's, I think, I think that's kind of it. Dude, all that stuff will be in the show notes, but a little aside on Flipside Canvas. What's funny is the moment I went to your site, it's like, okay, if you guys can imagine all of the like CPA offices or insurance offices you walk through, where there's like an eagle flying, uh, you know, in the mountains, and then it'll be like, be the leader that you want to be, or something stupid like that. It's basically what those signs are trying to be. Yeah. but in real life for dudes that are bad. Right. So like, that's, that's what I kind of put that as. So bravo for some of the stuff that you're creating, but Dakota, we've talked about a lot of stuff in this podcast, but this is likely going to be my last question of the day towards the end of the way forward, the new book that'll be in the show notes. There you go. We, we've done our, our stuff. Uh, the publishers are below us. Now you have a short, almost throwaway quote that caught my attention. It's like in the middle of a paragraph. Okay. 
So around this time in the book, you're talking about being a firefighter. You're talking about going on these emergency calls. Uh, you're talking about always being ready, how you've responded to a bunch of roadside crashes and problems, how you kind of always seem to be, you know, at the right place at somebody else's wrong time kind of a deal. But here was the quote that stood out to me. Sometimes I wonder if maybe God is preparing me for something in the future, but I don't know what it is yet. So as I read your story and as I reflect on your story, Dakota, being, being a Christian myself, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, there's nothing more clear to me than the fact that God has a very specific purpose for you and that the Dakota Meyer story is not done. The Dakota Meyer story is not wrapped up in this book that's in my hands. There's a whole lot more to your story. It's not wrapped up in your daughters. It's not wrapped up in your, any of your past relationships or even in your future relationships. But God has something I can feel in my bones, Dakota. God has an extreme calling for your life where he is going to utilize everything that you've experienced up to that point in order to respond to his calling. Do you feel the same way? 100%. Yeah. I mean, and that's, yeah. And, and, and as scary as that is, right? Like, to think that that he he's preparing me for something bigger than what I've already had to go through is is a scary aspect, right? Yeah. Uh, but you know what I don't know is is like you know I, I'll tell you I had a big shift um, had, had had a couple calls that that really kind of bothered me of you know where we where we lost where we were with people that that, that died and. You know, I, I had a huge shift on my mindset of it. And and now, like, whenever I get to and, – and I say this, and, and you, you got to hear it out because it doesn't sound good in, at, at the beginning. But when I get to watch somebody die, I used to look at it negative. And now I just – I look at it in a positive thing that I got to share these last moments with these people on earth, and I made sure that they're not alone, that someone was with them that cared about them, that, that as they're about to go cross the threshold, um, I got to stand there with them and hopefully make it just a little bit better. Hopefully that they're la- my my dream is my goal is that every person that I know is about to leave this world that I'm I'm around, I want them or that their last thought, whatever it is, I don't know, I don't know, right? But like whatever their last thought is, whatever their last feeling is, whatever their last breath is, is that they felt loved and cared about on earth. And if I can be that, I'll do it all day long. Well, Dakota, for all we know, maybe you've already found that. Maybe that is your calling. Maybe it's just constantly putting in those reps. Maybe it's not that one big day, like in the battle of Ganjagal. Maybe it's just those constant reps of being that guy that can help people as they cross over. But man, I can't think of a better place uh, to leave our discussion for today, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Thanks so much, man. I appreciate you. All right, Dakota Meyer, thank you for coming on Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thank you. There you go, guys. Hey, I told you it was an intense one, but man, that is one of, again, that's one of my favorite shows that I've done. It was just such a cool interview. I'm so glad that you guys were here for it. Before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So I've got a lot of links for Dakota here. So I've got a link to his website. From there, you can get to a lot of other places, including to his socials. I got a link to both books that we talked about in this show, the new book, The Way Forward, and his memoir, Into the Fire. Also, I've got links to his podcast, to his businesses. That's only 
own the dash, the dash IV flip side canvas, American party podcast, front toward enemy. Basically, if you want to get connected and stay connected with Dakota, we've got you squared away. It's in the show notes. We're here for you. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary of their re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>